Dude, the craziest thing happened last month. I recently got into cycling. So I went out to REI to buy a bike rack to transport my bicycle. It didn't quite inform my wife of my decision, but I went out and I got a $500 bike rack. It was so cool. But as you can imagine, it did not end up well. This is a true story. Bro, if I did that, my wife would divorce me. Divorce you? Dude, you should even joke around with that. That shouldn't be in your vocabulary. Why? Christians get divorced all the time. This is true. They do. We should probably talk about that. Yeah, it seems like a good idea. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Kingdom Thinking. I'm your host, Hansel. This is my co-host, Josh. Today, we are going to dive into the topic of Christians and divorce and the different perspectives and positions that lead people to have a conviction on this very complicated and very tragic reality for Christians. Yeah, I mean, this is huge, right? Because when we're talking about this idea, divorce is something that we often hear of being a symptomatic of, you know, just bad situations and things like that. But scripture has a pretty robust discussion that's nuanced and really centered in a couple thousand years of both Christian and Jewish thought. And so, and Jesus actually speaks to the topic of divorce, uh, like quite specifically Mm -hmm. in two different passages Mm -hmm. uh, that we think are worth examining. And so we see these kind of occur uh, in two different spots. One is in Mark 10 Mm -hmm. and the other is in Matthew 19. And so what's valuable, uh, we're just going to kind of go through a simple uh, approach today. We're going to like read the scriptures. We're going to talk about the historical perspective that they're situated in. And then we're going to talk about some of the ethical and pastoral implications of, you know, the different viewpoints that people have with them. Good, good, good. So just for some context here, divorce as the termination of of a marriage is central. It's a central theme uh, because marriage is a central theme, right? And so from the creation account, marriage as the union of man and wife, also as a parallel or a metaphor for God's union with his people is going to thread the whole story of the Bible. So from creation account throughout the Old Testament, then again in the New Testament, you have both Jesus and Paul really bringing this together. Mm-hmm. And so this is central. What we're going to do, like you said, is focus on these two really unique passages yeah. in Mark 10 and Matthew 19 um, and kind of really get into it a little bit. So Yeah, so I'll just go ahead and read uh, the verse for you that occurs in Mark and then the verse in Matthew, and we'll talk about some interesting differences that I highlight in this section. So Good. Uh, Mark 10, 11, and 12, Jesus is talking to uh, religious teachers here, mm-hmm. and he answers, uh, the verse says this, he answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. So notice the real big equality there, right, between male and female responsibility and for the importance of marriage uh, in the Mark and Jesus' perspective here. And then uh, if you flip over to Matthew 19, 8 and 9, Jesus replies, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but this is not the way it was from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, uh, immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Okay, so super interesting. You have essentially the same stipulation, the same uh, criteria, the same position is taken mm-hmm. here with one really big difference. Yeah. And that's the exception clause right. that you get in Matthew 19. Yes. So Mark doesn't make an exception clause in in his portrayal of Jesus's words here, and Matthew does. Uh, and so there's a very specific kind of historical situation arising here, because in Mark, if you were to read that just on his face and you had no other gospel, your assumption would probably be there's never an okay reason 
to get a divorce. Otherwise, you're going to automatically be committing adultery. And Correct. the implications of the way that works out are actually pretty big because the idea of being a follower of Jesus is you're repentant from sin. And if you are constantly in a state of marriage to somebody who's not your original husband or wife, yeah. then you can potentially fall into the pitfall of wondering if you are perpetually committing adultery. Right. And so are you outside of salvation or are you not being able to be saved, right? And so right. those are some real big things that we have to kind of wrestle with here. Yeah. So before we jump into all those things, a, a quick background of the history of the situation here. Uh, so before Jesus, uh, it's important to remember before we kind of talk about this, Jesus uh, was a teacher, right? He was a rabbi. And so he would often uh, in the Jewish tradition continue on in the conversation and dialogue of rabbis that were before him, right? And particularly in, in what's known as the Mishnah, uh, there's a period of theory of law where a husband could divorce his wife. And this was challenged by the idea of uh, these two rabbis. You kind of have this conversation going. There's a rabbi named Shammai and a rabbi named Hillel. Mm -hmm. And so the idea here was Shammai had this very strict understanding of the scriptures, right? That you could only get a divorce, like the Matthean clause says here, right? If there was some type of sexual immorality that mm -hmm. occurred on the part of the wife. And so this was big because Jesus seems like he's kind of siding with Rabbi Shammai here, because in the day that Jesus lived, uh, Rabbi Hillel, who's the other uh, viewpoint here, held the idea that a husband didn't actually really need a reason to give his wife a divorce Correct. certificate. He could just kind of write her one and send her on her way. Mm -hmm. And what's incredibly problematic about that idea is women, because of their low position in history, right? They were considered property. And in that society. Yeah. And they needed a man to be able to provide for them, to take care of them. And really their only value that was contributed and not, not only value, the main value that they had for contribution was through their ability to have children and kind of continue on the family lineage. So if you just write a woman a certificate of divorce for kind of, you know, burning your toast or whatever mm -hmm. there and you send her You're on your way. Her. Yeah. And you are like fiscally, economically crippling her, Correct. right. In a way that is potentially, you know, something that she can't recover from. Correct. And, and so this is the view that kind of Jesus is speaking against, right, in such a harsh tonality. And so uh, we have those viewpoints kind of laid out, or we kind of have the groundwork laid out for the historical discussion, right? Jesus is contributing to the greater dialogue of mm -hmm. the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel, and he's certainly not in the camp of Hillel, and he seems to be almost, in Mark at least, intensifying the Shammai's understanding uh, and taking it a step further and saying there's no room for divorce whatsoever. And Correct. so because Matthew is a gospel that's written to a predominantly Jewish audience, it makes more sense that Matthew is going to keep in line with the stricter Jewish tradition. And so for Mark, his audience probably unaware, right, of this kind of Mishnah traditional conversation that's happening there. Uh, Mark is probably zeroing in on the idea that men and women both need to be responsible for contributing to the idea of maintaining God's central plan for marriage. Yeah. One man, one woman, one lifetime. Good, good. So just to recap for our audience, because that was, that was, yeah, a it's, a, it's a big mouthful. That was a lot. So just to recap in Jesus time, he is interacting with teachers of the old Testament. Mm -hmm. So the old Testament scriptures in the time of the Roman Empire, where Jesus, in the time where he lived, they actually had commentary and they had traditions and teachings that were based off of the Old Testament. Yep. And that's called the Mishnah. Mm -hmm. So a few hundred years before Jesus, actually there's Jewish teaching and commentary that was preserved mm -hmm. up until that time. So when the New Testament talks about the Pharisees or different religious teachers, they're assuming the tradition that was passed down to them, and that's what Jesus is interacting with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In this particular context, we have two schools of thought, like you mentioned. One is the more strict school of thought that we see Mark portraying here. There's no clause, 
neither man nor woman can get divorced. And we have the, a different school of thought in the Gospel of Matthew where there's, there's that exe- exception clause mm-hmm. of sexual immorality being the only acceptable criteria. Right. So what's now our task is to analyze how Christians have inherited or interpreted that context. Right. Because Christians are going to fall into either one of these two camps, right? Um, so, I mean, what do you think? How, how, do, how do we jump into here? Yeah, so there's... Just, re- just pick one? Well, yeah, I mean, it kind of seems to go that way, right? There's really two positions, right, that people are going to affirm. And, and so we'll examine both of those ideas. We'll look at the concept of divorce never being okay, right? Mm-hmm. Because this is something that pastors have talked about, right? Yes. Like I've heard it preached from the pulpit. Yes. I've seen it. I have it heard uh, too. And it can be quite destructive on some levels, right? Depending on how it's phrased, if they're not careful with those kinds of things, uh, the heart or the intention of the argument is a good one. And so this idea that we could never get a divorce, right? Like there's no reason to do so. It seems to be centered on the main understanding that as early as Genesis, Mm -hmm. right? God is going to say that man leaves his father and mother and he unites to his wife in one flesh. Mm -hmm. And that one flesh is a literal joining of two bodies to being one family Mm -hmm. there. And so anything less than that is a devaluing of God's plan and intention for the human being. And then we see that really intensified in the New Testament when Christ and his bride become the church. And so it, it almost seems like this position is really grounding itself in the holiest of language mm-hmm. that we have to discuss the notion of our representative view or our symbolic view with Jesus uh, and his interaction with us. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be like a pretty important idea to me. Yep. And, and so it seems to make sense why somebody would be so intense in their proclamation of saying that divorce is never an okay option. Correct. That's exactly right. I remember a few years ago, I watched a, a short YouTube clip by New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, Mm -hmm. one of the leading scholars in the New Testament, and he's getting interviewed, and he goes on this explanation where he finds it fascinating that in our current society, uh, sometimes we limit the ramifications or the understanding of marriage to something like it's economic or social or um, cultural significance and outworking. And he's essentially what he's saying is that's completely backwards. Right. And you're limiting or distorting the very nature of it by focusing on the byproducts of it. Right. right. Like it's absolutely true that there are ramifications for society financially Mm -hmm. and culturally and values that come out of this, your understanding of marriage. Right. But essentially what he's saying is that the fundamental purpose and the fundamental orientation of marriage throughout the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, is supposed to be a, a representative, a, a picture yeah. for the union of God with his people. Yeah. So this position then, coming from Mark, what we see, the school of thought, is to emphasize and to undergird and celebrate this deep theological reality mm-hmm. that God will not divorce his people. Right, right. The covenant is such that he has promised himself through his own life to his bride, to his people, and that we could never be snatched from him. So it's a really beautiful and assuring concept. Yeah, and I think what's important to know about this is like oftentimes, right, your first thought if you're watching this is probably going to immediately be like, well, what about abuse? What about cheating? Exactly. Blah, blah, blah. And we'll talk about those things in a moment. For sure. But I don't want to get away from the fact that 
this is supposed to be a huge picture, right? Like yep. this is supposed to be probably one of the most weighty decisions that you can make. Mm -hmm. And particularly as we look through the evolution of the why behind marriage throughout the totality of history, mm -hmm. we notice a big conversation around economics, around joint kingdoms, around blah, 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 like all of these reasons that are uh, a spiritual, right? In their, they're like they're not good or bad. They're just not really spiritual in their intentionality. Correct. But when you see pain describing, uh, like the weeping prophet, uh, prophets in the Old Testament describing God in his divorce from Israel because of Israel's continued unfaithfulness, mm -hmm. right? And the anguish with which they describe God's character and God's passion about this sadness that he's suffering, right? In these in these episodes. It's a real clear picture of the seriousness with which God takes the idea of covenant. Mm -hmm. And marriage is so um, often, right, in our society has kind of turned into this idea of like uh, when irreconcilable differences, mm -hmm. right, becomes the main checkbox by which people get a divorce. Correct. I can't think of anything more antithetical to the picture of marriage, right, than irreconcilable differences. Just that those words on its face. Like Ephesians 5, 21 and 22 tell us to submit to Christ as to one another. Mm -hmm. And submission to one another means that no difference is irreconcilable if both parties are willing to do that. Yep. And so we'll like we'll get to the other things that are a little bit more nuanced in the dis in this discussion, but if you're watching this like you have to understand the heavy emphasis with which God places a, a seriousness on the covenant of marriage Correct. as a whole. That's right. So when woman is bones and flesh of the man in the creation account, I think there's a textual variant in Ephesians where it also says that we are bones and mm -hmm. flesh of mm -hmm. Christ. This is such a huge picture, yeah. right? And so we want to emphasize that yeah. and to steal man, as it were, yeah. that position, to, to really give it credence. Yeah. Now, having said that, what are we want negatives? to address yeah. these concerns for our audience because if you're watching and maybe you've been in a divorce or maybe you know somebody who's a Christian and has been in a divorce, there's probably situations or circumstances that you're thinking about. But what about, what about domestic abuse? Mm -hmm. What about... Infidelity, yeah, yeah, for that, sure. Which isn't there in Mark, for right? Sure. What for about sure. emotional abuse? What about um, abandonment, just emotionally? Somebody who goes to work and feeds you but is absent yeah. otherwise. I think that's a legitimate question. Yeah. So, how, what do you think? How do we jump in? Well, so I think there's two kind of conversations that need to be had here. The first, so anytime <laughs> I actually just did a marriage this past weekend, right? And, nice. Uh, the kind of the key phrase I use in every single marriage uh, ceremony that I perform yeah. is the idea of like your marriage is supposed to be a submission competition, right? Hmm. And the conversation that we need to have here is how can I submit to the betterment or how can I submit for the betterment of my family, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, I have a wife and a you know almost two-year-old daughter and everything that I exist to do is to help my wife succeed in all facets of her life and then help my daughter grow and become the woman that I know that Christ, you know, has created her to mm -hmm. be. And when you begin to view things or when I find myself viewing things through that paradigm, mm -hmm. it's quite easy to be selfless, mm -hmm. right? Like it's actually quite easy to be like, I don't want to, you know, spend more money on me for this time, right? I think it's better to actually put that money away instead of like, I don't know, buying a $500 bike rack. Without <laughs> I don't know. Somebody told me that once. And so we're here. Uh, no, but the idea is like, when you have that right frame of mind, all of a sudden it, it can kind of pull some of the desire to be okay. selfish out of you. And, and so, uh, so that assumes that you have two people who understand that a hundred percent. And that's really the key here, right? Okay. The notion that one person 
not fulfilling their covenantal vows okay. is huge. All right. It's a huge conversation piece. And uh, I, again, personal here. So this is not from Jesus. This is not from Paul. This is from Josh. So take this with like a pound of salt there. But it's like, I even believe in my heart of hearts that infidelity can be solved and be the thing that leads to the greatest chapter of a marriage and the greatest season that comes thereafter if both parties are willing to participate. Okay. And the most successful marriages I've ever seen personally, so again, this is all anecdotal, have been when some partner has cheated and both partners have recognized the role that they play in contribution to that. Now, let me kind of clarify that there. The person who was cheated on is not guilty of like, like that's not their sin, right? Like they don't have to apologize for being cheated on. They're not a bad person or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes those situations don't arise in a vacuum. Okay. And so the people that I've seen who have been successful post infidelity discussions have been people who have said, uh, maybe I worked too much. And so I created an environment for my wife to feel isolated and alone. Right. So let me work less. Right. Like there's a desire to figure out how they can help work on the healing, right? The active side of the healing instead of just simply placing all of the blame on the guilty party and then just bailing. And, and so that's a very dangerous tightrope to walk because mm-hmm. you can kind of get lost in the sauce and all that if you're not careful. Yeah. And, and so and like victim shaming. Right. Right. And we definitely don't you know want to do those things or kind right. of walk in those situations. But Anytime we see this conversation around some type of marital uh, abandonment, right, be it emotional, physical, or not even, but just like you're saying, like feeding and just existing, that can Correct. actually be worse than yeah. <laughs> like a lot of the other things because it kind of plunges you into the subpar existence. Right. Those to me would seem like they would be grounds for divorce mm. there. Those to me would seem like those things would be grounds for uh, a divorce if that partner is unwilling mm-hmm to try and own what they need to own to yeah. make it better. Yeah, and, and that's that's an appropriate segue to the second position, which would say or stipulate certain grounds for which divorce would be permissible. Right. And so we have the, the Mark and the Matthew passage where Jesus, um, the portrayal of Jesus' words in the Gospels mm-hmm. are, are there. I really think it's important... Um, to bring in Paul's understanding in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 mm-hmm. of so it, of the situation. So essentially what you have in the letter to the Corinthians is this new church who is, I don't know, think of like if you were planting a church in Las Vegas, right? And it's a <laughs> bunch of like ex-gamblers and sure. strippers and all this kind of thing. And they just converted to Christ. And mm-hmm. it was amazing. Uh, but there's a lot of work to be done in discipling and in mentoring these people out of a different previous lifestyle. That's kind of how I think about the Corinthian church because mm-hmm. they're so embedded in pagan culture. And Paul's constantly saying, "Like guys, we don't we don't do that anymore." Right. Kind of thing. Right. So people are asking, "Like, wait, hey, like I'm married to a non-believer, and they left. What would I do? Right. Do I divorce or not?" Um, and so it's really interesting to me that the initial standard or the initial prescription is as much as you can remain as you are mm-hmm. if you're free of marriage if you're single be cont- remain as you are yeah, yeah if yeah. you're married like, don't even get married right it's like i wish more people <laughs> you could be single like i'm single right so we right. could do more cool gospel stuff exactly which if, usually ends in like being beheaded somehow but sure. <laughs> for sure yeah <laughs> if you are married remain as you are yeah so you have i think this is an interesting distinction right because you could have two christians and still have the same possibility of whether it's, there's sexual immorality or some sort of emotional or physical abuse where 
one person is, it's like they're acting like they're not a Christian. Yeah, yeah, right? absolutely. Um, or you could have somebody who married a non-believer, and so they're like, well, I don't have to abide by those right. standards. Right. So this, this, this is really interesting as we get into the, the second position where some Christians will say, hey, there are circumstances in which divorce would be permissible. Right. So what are some of those? Yeah, so we would see, I mean, certainly we see sexual immorality as Correct. one. Uh, certainly we see emotional abuse as one. Yeah. Physical abuse, child abuse mm. is huge. Huge. I also think this would carry over into monetary discussions as mm. well, right? Uh, because when we talk about this idea of uh, maybe somebody is like hoarding money or lying about money, like yeah. kind of compulsively lying about the way things yes. are or like gambling debts or things oh, like that, yeah. like those types of things can bankrupt, you know, like not just literally, but like emotionally a family mm -hmm. as well. And so mm -hmm. those, but those things to me, <clears throat> seem to all under or all fall under the umbrella of like abdicating your responsibility okay. to the other there. In other words, intentionally choosing to break the vow. Yeah. So that you're no longer a covenant keeper. Well, you're married that, to something if else. If that persists. Right? Interesting. Kind of so it's almost like idolatrous then. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're choosing some other sure. thing rather than your spouse. Mm -hmm. And so, so here's the question then, at what point do you know where that has been broken or whether it's like, no, like every, cause no marriage is perfect. Sure. Right. Sure. My marriage isn't perfect. Yours isn't perfect. We all uh, have disagree. Yeah. You're yeah. right. Pretty close. <laughs> you're close. There you go. Nice. That was for you, babe. Yeah. We all have disagreements. We all have things we work on. Right. But there's a big difference between having a fight or even constantly having to work on a certain thing yeah, or a lapse. Right. Yeah. And saying like, no, this is so perpetual or so persistent that this is a covenant break. Yeah. So how I guess the question I'm asking is, I, I think the no divorce ever position is neater just because you don't have to worry about the question, well, Correct. when was the covenant broken? Yeah, it's a lot less gray. Exactly. Because what happens with a position of, well, in certain situations, divorce seems to be permissible according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 or Matthew and mm -hmm. uh, Jesus in Matthew 19. Well, where do you draw the line then? Mm -hmm. And how would you know? Like, so if, if, the, if a spouse is an alcoholic or if a spouse is a gambling addict or it doesn't even have to be addiction, but some other vice. Yeah. Like, how much is too much before right. you're saying, you know what, the you've abdicated your duty, I'm out. Yeah, so I, I would say that there are a few telltale signs. When contrition uh, is about the consequence, not mm. about the offense, Okay. right? So consequence versus offense is big to me in okay. that conversation, right? So uh, let's say if you're married to like a porn addict, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and they just refuse to get help. Okay. And you catch them regularly, right, over whatever X amount of time would be. You're in counseling together. You're trying to work mm. on it. You're trying to be intentional. When your intentionality is met with a wall, mm -hmm. right, like some type of stone wall experience, uh, then to me it begins to signal the idea of the ultimatum situation where it's like, hey, look, either you get this together or I'm leaving you. There, uh, because you know, we were joking at the top of the show, but like, actually, the word divorce is not something that my wife and I use in the house, like even as a joke, right? Uh, because it is that serious to to us. And and mm -hmm. uh, I think though, the best honest advice I can probably give to somebody walking through the situation is, it's probably not a decision that you should arrive at at your own. Mm -hmm. It's probably wise to have some third party professional in that mix to dialogue with you so i think a counselor is absolutely fundamental mm -hmm. for this part of the conversation yeah. that if if divorce is popping up in your head as like a hey it's not a far off thing on the horizon like it's actually just a couple streets away yeah like 
you need to be having that conversation out with the counselor because there is irreparable harm that's done to the family, to you, to your relationships and blah, blah, blah. So, uh, but ultimately I think it's when, you know, the, the sadness is more for getting caught Caught. there than being violating the covenant. Correct. Yeah. I think that sounds right to me. That sounds, that that sounds like a helpful way Mm -hmm. to be able to measure if you can somebody's attitude about it because it's not, it's not empirical, right? It's yeah. not scientific. How sorry are you right now? Yeah, yeah. Where are you on the repentance? Like, yeah, right, yeah. It doesn't work that right, way, right? right? But somebody's actions are going to be a reflection of their attitude. Always. And so it's not just the verbal covenant that needs to be reaffirmed. It needs to be in actions. Yeah. And I, so I see what you're saying that the beauty of grace and restoration comes and is manifested after such pain and harm well, and, and Paul hurt. leaves the door open for that, right? By saying like, if you're going to be divorced from your spouse, you can be reconciled to your spouse mm-hmm. later, right? And if that is the ultimate end for your marriage, yeah. then hopefully, right? I mean, I know that if that would be the end for me and my wife, I would want that to be the ultimate goal to get yeah. back there, yeah. you know? And, and so Correct. Uh, maybe sometimes it takes that severe of rock bottom mm. circumstances for people for to, somebody be to respond. by God. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so so the statement there, or in effect, the criteria there is the other person's response, yeah. right? Because you can't control the other person's response. And so what they're doing for the betterment or worsening of that reconciliation should be an indicator. Yeah. Yeah. I also think that there's an important part of how pastors and leaders in churches can walk with uh, couples yes, and marriages times, yes. in churches in in these situations. And I think the integration of not like so pastors aren't magicians yeah. right? and they're not going to reconcile. Yeah. So we're tipping the hat here to professional counseling yeah. and the importance Always. of how of having somebody who is an expert. In, in these understandings of dynamics and backgrounds and why things are happening, not just that they're happening. Mm-hmm. These things together would be super, super beneficial. And Seriously, go see a counselor. Yeah. Let, <laughs> consider this your PSA. Absolutely. I mean, you've talked about, you know, d- doing that before. Yeah. I've, I've seen, yeah. you know, a counselor. And it, it's something that is so important to be able to complement just even self-awareness, yeah, right? Always. And things like that. Always. So, what's, what's the book people can read if they want to yeah, dig into this Yeah, I was going to reference. So this is hopefully a launching pad for this discussion. There's a book called Divorce and Marriage for Christian Views. And essentially these four views are going to reflect different perspectives on divorce and remarriage. Mm Because that's another fascinating topic, right? What if you get divorced? Can you get remarried? So view number one would be no divorce is permissible ethically for Christians and obviously no remarriage. Yep. The converse would be um, divorce is permissible in the in the situation of adultery, but not remarriage. Then you have um, divorce is permissible and remarriage is permissible. And then the fourth would be divorce is not permissible, but in the case of like... Um, widowing yeah. or a bereavement, then remarriage would be yeah. permissible. So those for views, that would be a really, really good resource to continue that conversation yeah, for absolutely. viewers. Yeah. Awesome. So good stuff, man. Thank you guys for tuning in. Leave us a comment. What do you think? Is there a way that you think churches can do a better job of being sensitive and ministering to couples who are going through this to take into account some of these realities? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Kingdom Thinking.